Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Okay, friends, so this is the third day of the meditation. How many are learning something about their mind? Want to learn a little more? (laughs) (laughs) But you have enough to deal with already. So yesterday we were talking about uh, you know the three levels of wisdom being the intellectual wisdom of the Dhamma that you read about uh, and then you reflect on those uh, those uh, teachings or readings think about them ponder them observe them uh, as they're happening uh, in and around you and so on and then finally the deepest level being that kind of meditative insights or openings of the mind that uh, sort of convince you of the teaching because in the beginning there could be doubts yeah you know that that sounds cool kama you know nibbana yeah you know but it's like you really don't know you know so, but once you get the deep insights, then it's like you're 100% convinced. And not even a Jehovah's Witness or somebody else would be able to, you know, uh, deconvince you. <laughs> Excuse me. For... <clears throat> so, and one of the, uh, you know, as we were talking about, you know, Vipassana meditation. Uh, is comprised of the two uh, uh, aspects of pasana means to see, seeing. And V is a prefix that means to divide up into the parts. So it means, basically it means seeing the mental process divided up into its parts. Normally we just see and do things and we just think it's me that's doing it and it's an automatic process and we just think it's, you know, we don't even know, actually, but uh, we just take it for granted. But uh, vipassana means seeing the mental process in its multifaceted aspects and divided up into its uh, parts uh, and also impermanence, seeing the impermanence of the mental process and ultimately even the no-self nature of uh, consciousness. So, one of the uh, very important uh, teachings of the Buddha concerning the the mind, our body and mind, were called the uh, Panch Upadana Kanda, or the five aggregates. These are the five aspects of our body and mind. And it's actually the essence of dukkha. Because in the Buddha's definition of suffering, you know, he says, uh, <clears throat> birth, sickness, old age, disease, and death are suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Then he went on to say, not getting what you want is suffering, getting what you don't want is suffering. And then he said, in short, the five aggregates of clinging are suffering. 
So you can see that those five aggregates are actually the very core of the Buddha's teaching about uh, suffering. Uh, and because it's also what we are. There's nothing apart from that. And, uh, and the mental process is comprised of these things. I know it sounds like a kind of an intellectual, again, you know, uh, but that's, a, you know, an intellectual teaching. But when you reflect on it, then you think about it. Okay, what is physical form? Yeah. What is feeling? What is perception? What is volition? What is consciousness? And when you reflect on those and when you, you, you observe them in meditation, then, then it starts to get more meaning. It's no longer just a pie-in-the-sky, airy-fairy, you know, kind of a, a dogma or something that some people think it is. And then, uh, <clears throat> and then in the deepest levels of wisdom, in the realizations, then, in fact, it's the five aggregates of clinging, seeing their no-self nature, which is tantamount to entering the stream in the first stage of enlightenment, seeing the no-self uh, aspect of uh, consciousness. So, it's good to have a, an idea about, about it, and especially if you're practicing vipassana meditation, because that's what actually vipassana means, seeing the mental process divided up into form, feeling, perception, volition, and consciousness. And how they're uh, con you know, constantly uh, changing, arising and vanishing. So, you know, bear with me a little bit, you know. <laughs> uh, So material form, basically, it means any of the five physical sense objects, which are sounds that come through the ear, visible objects that strike the eye, odors that go through the nose, flavors on the tongue, and tactile you know, body sensations, either on the skin or coming from within the body, those kind of uh, sensations. And so whenever, and you know, we're always getting impinged by those uh, sensory uh, stimulations. And that produces a feeling. Whenever the senses are contacted, it produces a feeling. Let's say you, you look in a mirror and you see yourself. And, you know, you may get a pleasant feeling or you may get an unpleasant feeling, depending on what you think of yourself, right? So, but that's a mental reaction. It's the, the, the mind's interpretation of uh, what this physical stimulus uh, either produces a, a painful, pleasant, or, or neutral uh, feeling. So that's called Vedana. And it's the first aspect of our mental experience. That's the first aspect of the mind that comes into play is Vedana, when something strikes uh, the sense organs. That's the vibration of the web. You know, when a sound vibration strikes the ear, that sets up a vibration in the nervous system that's relaying through the nervous system and then registers in the brain as perception or registers as the, the feeling and perception. And so when it's coming through the nervous system, it's picked up as this is something painful or this is something pleasant or this is something neutral. But it's a conditioned thing. Uh, it's a conditioned response. The pleasant and painful and neutral are not absolute qualities that are given to certain objects. But everything we've ever experienced in our life from the time you were a baby or even coming from previous lives, the mind has categorized them as this, this is giving, gives me a, a pleasant feeling and this gives me a painful feeling or a neutral feeling. Like the example of the baby I mentioned the other day, right? The grandmother gives the baby a sweet. 
and then it, you know because of that sweet it, it's a pleasurable feeling and then it's it, it uh, w- wants that again and it identifies the face of the mother with this pleasurable feeling so then the grandmother gives a pleasurable feeling because it's uh, associating that with expecting it to get a sweet that's going to give it uh, its real, what it really wants is the pleasurable feeling on the tongue. So this is very important to understand because it's about conditioning uh, and how we get trapped by craving you know, and, and desire and craving as well as aversion. And immediately upon the feeling arises the perception. And the perception is how the mind uh, labels, identifies, or pictures uh, that uh, feeling, which is basically just a vibration, an invisible uh, kind of vibration. Well, maybe uh, coming through the eye, it's a visual vibration, but coming through the ear, uh, you're not seeing it, or coming through the nose. Uh, <clears throat> so these are just uh, what we call the vibrations. But then it pictures it, such as the sound, right? Sound vibration. How many people were sitting this morning meditating, and then when you heard sounds, uh, what happened in the mind? Did you identify those sounds as those are birds are chirping, those are the, the, the teacher talking, those are the person next to me moving? Okay, those are perceptions, those are how the mind creates and recreates a mental picture based on an empty kind of vibration or just a, a vibration. And then and that's how we memorize it. And every object has its particular vibration. Every sound has its particular vibration. That's how you can sit with your eyes closed and you can hear many, many sounds going off. But all these perceptions are popping into your mind, right? Just like popcorn. Rain on the roof, birds chirping, people talking outside, car going down the road, plane going overhead. And the mind is just popping out all these perceptions. And then depending on your uh, past experience with the object, then uh, you will either, you know, like that object or not like the object. Now this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Sometimes some people say, well, this... does feeling come first and then perception? Does perception come first and then feeling? Well, according to the text, it says feeling comes first, but I don't think it matters that much because uh, sometimes you, know, you can't really decipher that very easily. But sometimes the perception is more evident uh, and then the feeling arises. Or the reaction. But anyway, don't make a big deal out of that. You know, it's uh, uh, about trying to determine exactly which came first. The main thing is, is to understand the process involved. But, so the feeling is related to the object. And that's why we get attached to the objects, again. Because we... Uh, and the object itself, it, again, it depends on your past experience with that. But those things can change. Feelings can change. What used to give you a painful feeling, later on in your life, could give you a, a pleasant feeling. And what, when you were younger, gave you a pleasant feeling, later on could give you a painful feeling. Because they're impermanent. And they're subject to change. But we tend to cling on to the object and saying that object has to have that meaning forever and ever and ever. But then when it changes, 
the example, the typical example, and don't get offended if, you know, if this pertains to you or something, okay? Because uh, it's one of the most common examples. So, you know, when you're young, you might have a, had a girlfriend or your boyfriend, you might have fallen in love or even got married. And so, in those first few weeks, months, or years, that other significant other gave you a pleasant feeling when you saw them, right? Maybe when you first saw them because of their, their you know, look and all that, you know, pleasant feeling. If you like blondes and you saw a blonde, then a pleasant feeling would arise. Uh, you know, if you're from California or something. Or blue eyes or whatever, all these <laughs> different things, right? Straight hair, curly hair. All these are kind of things that people get attached to and people get attracted to. But, so after some years, if that uh, friend, you know, starts uh, having eyes for somebody else, then you can feel this, you know, this dart of pain in your heart. And then if that persists and you know, this person or whatever, you know, the breakup occurs and, uh, and so on, then your feeling toward that person may change. It's the same person in, in look, right? So that's what I'm saying. These feelings are subject to change and they're impermanent. But we get attached to the object thinking it shouldn't change. And that's what means clinging, taking things to be permanent, which are impermanent. That everything is subject to change. And we can't control others. So people have gone through three or four or five or even more relationships, haven't they? You read it in the news and all that. In the same way with... Uh, and no two people will have the same experience with a, a a particular object. Let's say you're in a, a museum looking at a Van Gogh painting. There's a, you know, two or three people you know, looking at a Van Gogh painting. One person says, wow, Van Gogh is a masterpiece. Look at that perfect color. You know? And another person goes, that's not like it at all. And the other person maybe have a, a neutral feeling. And then they start getting in an argument. What? You don't like Van Gogh? What are you, crazy? And maybe even come to fisticuffs. It's happened, hasn't it? Maybe not over a Van Gogh painting, <laughs> but certainly a lot of other things, right? Music, for example, clinging to music. Ah, oh, turn off that dirty country music or whatever. And people kill over this attachment to their ideas of what is good or bad, beautiful or ugly. And that's the problem, basically. And it's the clinging, thinking these things have absolute value and clinging to them. And then wanting to fight and defend your opinion because you're clinging even to your opinion. And that can be applied to regular sensory objects, uh, religion, politics, you know, uh, Every war in you know, the world has been created over some types of clinging to ideology, religion, whatever. When none of those have any real absolute value because it's been created in the mind. So feeling and perception are uh, uh, those, uh, you know, the, the second and the third of the five aggregates. So there's the form, which is the material stimulus, and that's needed to, to trigger off the mind. And then the feeling and the perception arises. That means you have identified the object, and you've identified it as something you want or you want to get away from. And what's the next step? You have to decide what to do about it. You know, you've got a, and volition is, is the larger of those aggregates, 
where perception happens only in a, in a nanosecond. But the volition means you get time to think. Do I want to uh, push this away or do I want to go and hold that? Do I want to react? Uh, do I want to shout back at somebody because he called me an idiot? Or whatever. Uh, so it's the decision that you are going to make based upon this feeling and perception. But sometimes there's no time limit. Like you get an itch and immediately you go like that. So you didn't have time to think really. Or maybe just a, a brief nanosecond which you, you know, just impulsively you reach up to scratch something. Or you hear a loud sound. Uh, so some of those reactions are instantaneously and some of them are kind of little delayed reactions where you have time to think and you come to a decision. Uh, maybe you were thinking, should I tell that lie or not? Well, you know, you weigh it and then you think, oh, okay, I'm going to do it anyway, you know, depending on what kind of result you want, you know, and what kind of gain you want to get. So all of our moral actions basically also uh, take place within that uh, sankara. That means the volition. But it also means the thinking. It's not only volition, but it means the thoughts about it. You're thinking, analyzing, debating, scheming, planning, and then you take action. And once you've taken the action, you can't take it back. The action is the karma. So this is where karma is created. It's created in the sankara. But it's based on the feeling and the perception. So if your perceptions and feelings are faulty, then your sankaras and actions are going to be faulty. That means you're going to lead to some unpleasant consequences. And people, you know, jump to conclusions and, and so on about things and then wind up regretting, you know, what things that they did. So that's why in Vipassana meditation uh, is exactly training to observe feeling, perception, and then the, the sankara, the urges. You know, and that, that desire to, you know, should I reach up and scratch that itch or not? And, or uh, so on. Should I move that leg because of the pain or not? So you have time to contemplate it. But then once you've actually done it, uh, you can't take it back, that uh, that action is done and you will get some kind of effect uh, from that, maybe not immediately but or in the future. Uh, but it's, it's in that little space of time after the perception and before the mind is reacted or to delay the, delay the reaction where you have time to bring in the Dhamma and contemplate. Is this action I'm about to do going to bring me pain in the future or in the present and the future for myself and others? And if you see it is, then you make the effort not to do it. But if you contemplate it and you say this action or speech or even thought is not going to bring me pain uh, in the future, it's a blameless then you have the ability to decide whether you're going to do it or not. So most people don't have that time. They don't have that luxury, right? Because they're operating out of their hardwired nervous system. They don't have that buffer zone. That's the buffer zone. The buffer zone is that ability to just observe and not react yet and then consider. Do I really need to... Uh, change my posture right now. Let me endure it to five more minutes. Uh, and then you'll be happy that you did. So anyway, uh, that's where really, that's where the practice of Dhamma comes about purifying our actions of body, speech, and mind is creating that buffer zone and that 
delayed reaction before the sankara, after the perception and and before the sankara takes place. That's sort of do or die, you could say, <laughs> in terms of in Dhamma language, in terms of the Kama. And every time you you do the sankara, it strengthens it. Because again, there's just neurons in the brain and neural pathways that we've been creating. And every time you repeat it, it puts another little groove like water running down a ditch, making it deeper and deeper, you know, each time. So the same way with our habits. And that's why they're so hard for people to change because a lot of people have been repeating those habits since they were a child. Uh, and addictions and all these kind of things. And really, uh, you know, the meditation is really the only only method, or maybe I shouldn't say only, but, uh, you know, it's probably, that allows you to actually get at your mind, you know, systematically training the mind to, uh, be able to uh, create that buffer zone and also the wisdom that goes with it. Because you could create a buffer zone to decide to go ahead and tell that lie or steal that thing or go sleep with somebody else's husband or wife or whatever. But it's the wisdom that, uh, you know, uh, the wisdom of knowing what is skillful and what is not skillful, what's going to bring suffering and what is going to bring not suffering. And not just for immediate gratification. See, most people live their life for immediate gratification. They don't think about the consequences. And then they suffer later down the road. So in the practice of Dhamma, we're interested in a long-term gratification. That means the peacefulness of our mind, the happiness of our mind, the mind free from guilt, worry, remorse, and fear, not just immediate sensual gratification. <clears throat> okay, so we've talked about four of the aggregates, right? Form, feeling, perception, volition, and then the last one is consciousness. And that's the hardest one to kind of directly observe and understand. But <clears throat> basically it's, it's that sense of I am the one that's feeling, perceiving, thinking, deciding. That sense of I that's there behind the, in the consciousness. And everything we do is for that I. And you know, basically it means the ego. The trinity of the ego is I, me, right. I, me, mine. That's the trinity of the ego. <clears throat> and every single action that we take revolves around one of those three. I, I might have already mentioned that even already, but. But anyway, that's that uh, sort of the consciousness that we take for self. We take it to be, this is uh, me, myself, and mine. Because it thinks that it's the one that's deciding to do things, but actually the decisions come from habits, not from you. And the decisions come from the wisdom that you've cultivated also. Like before you studied the Dhamma, you might have, you know, easily broken precepts without worrying about it too much, you know, killed cockroaches and insects and told lies and maybe, you know, did some stuff, right? Uh, I talk from my own experience. <laughs> uh, so, but then, you know, thinking everyone else does it, okay, it's okay, right? You know, locker room talk, right? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but then once you, you know, study the Dhamma, 
and you realize, oh, these things are unskillful. Now, when you have the urge to do those things, now you will reflect on that and hopefully then use that, that wisdom and understanding to make the right decision uh, to you know, abandon the unskillful you know, thought, speech, and actions. So anyway, all of those five aggregates, they occur every moment of hearing, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, and thinking. He said those aggregates come together in a kind of a split moment and also vanish. But they arise again and vanish at a supersonic speed. And he said the mind processes information, that five aggregate process occurs 10 to the 24th power in a finger snap or the blink of an eye. 10 to 24, crunch some numbers. Come on, you mathematicians. How many is that? I think it's a lot, right? <coughs> Faster than a Cray third generation supercomputer is processing information, the mind is faster. And uh, so that's why it's very difficult for us to uh, see the mental process and see the illusions that are created and the traps that the mind has created for us. But vipassana meditation is the Buddha's high technology. So a supercomputer is high technology, right? The mind is higher tech than that. Because this mind, not mine, but Stephen Jobs or whatever, you know, they create the computers. This mind has created computers and everything else in the world. <clears throat> so, uh, I'm just explaining that to try to give a kind of a, a larger picture of what, what is going on in the mind. But anyway, so that process is happening every moment of hearing, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, and thinking. And the five aggregates and the six senses are the two main subjects of Vipassana meditation. And in another very uh, sutta that the Buddha gave, the Buddha was out, had a group of monks and he was talking with them, you know, one day giving a lecture. And he says, monks, I'll teach you the all. And he went, oh, really? Okay, we're listening. He says, what is the all? It's the eye, visible objects, and seeing. It's the ear, sounds, and hearing. It's the nose, odors, and smelling. It's the tongue, flavors, and tasting. It's the skin, uh, tangible objects, and feeling. And it's the mind, mind objects, and uh, knowing. And he said, and that's all. Meaning, that's all what the mind is. It's just moments of uh, hearing, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, and thinking that are arising and passing away in that speed that I mentioned. Or at least, you know, a high speed. Uh, and he said, if you, if, can, he asked me, can you find me anything else except this all? No. He said, that's right, because there isn't. And the meaning of that means there's no self or I uh, that's in there as the owner or controller. It's just these uh, moments of uh, sensory uh, impingement, or what are called mind moments. So each moment of hearing, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, and thinking is called a mind moment in Buddhist psychology. And again, that process is happening at you know, again, faster than a supercomputer. And what our brain filters out is probably 0. 0.0001 of the information that's surrounding us in the, in the, in the world, the vibrations. Because even scientists will tell you 
our eye only picks up certain colors of the spectrum. The sound only hears certain wavelengths. And there's many others out there in the, the universe. Animals have different senses. They pick up different kinds of sounds and, and so on. So our brain is limited. And therefore, our experience of the world is also limited in, in that sense. Uh, but of course, we as human beings, thinking we're at the top of everything, uh, you know, that's why we don't believe anything else exists. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, so the tuning in to that process of hearing, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, that's what I was, you know, suggesting th this morning to gradually open up to that process. Because uh, when you train the mind to speed up the rate of perception, so that's speeding up the rate of perception so you can keep up with the flow of hearing, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, and thinking as it's coming through, which is possible, very possible. It's only our clinging and grasping that slows the mind down and not being able to notice many things. Again, it's the, the, because our mind sticks like glue like flypaper to objects, and then everything else just goes unknown uh, by. And so we, therefore we think these few things that we experience is the real. <clears throat> and it's very interesting, the, the mind, uh, you know, consciousness, is also a rising and vanishing. Each of those uh, moments of hearing, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, and thinking, consciousness arises and ceases. But it arises again and ceases so fast that we don't see the impermanence. We don't see the spaces between the consciousness. And it's run together like the old-fashioned re reels of film. You know, the motion picture reels of film, right? Individual frames with a space in the middle. And then they run, run a long reel through the projector and people sitting in the theater get all hot and bothered and, you know, all <laughs> thinking it's real. But when the projector jams and the thing stops, and people, what? You know, they lose their interest. Uh, and one of those those frames doesn't mean much. It's only when many, many are run together that it gives the mind time to then recall the perception and the feeling and the memory and then uh, react. And so, like even with birds chirping, that's actually good meditation. Sounds are very good for, for observing uh, this process. Uh, like you're sitting and meditating and you hear a and the mind is trying to think is that a robin red breast or is that a, if you're a birder or somebody right? you're trying to think, identify what kind of bird but if you only hear one well you know it's not an owl or a woodpecker but, but you know you may not there's not enough time to to think about it, right? Or even if you, if you just turn your head real fast, even try it right now, start in one corner of the room and just close your eyes and open your eyes and kind of go like that, you wouldn't have had time to really pick out and recognize too many things, right? But if you're moving slowly, and that process is happening many, many times, you realize, okay, that's the wood, and that's the water tube, that's this and this, and that's that person, this person, that person. Because the, the, the many arising and vanishing like, is creating the, the movie of this uh, object. And so it, it gives the illusion of you know, a concrete object. Now, we, you know, the object may be there, but again, we're trying to understand the mind and how the mind is creating it. Because the material world 
isn't that it's how our mind interprets the material world that's where our life is revolving around <clears throat> so this is the trick the trick of vipassana is you speed up the rate of perception so that you know without clinging to any particular one you just note and release note and release note and release and that's why the more things you can notice it's easy to not get stuck because there's something else you can notice but if your mind isn't clear then you get stuck on that pain and there's nothing else to really feel so the mind gets glued to that or gets glued to some sound that's happening but you got to give the, the mind more options, right? And so after developing the centeredness and the concentration and the training, like going through the body, then you, you start to doing yoga, you increase the life force. And so when you sit down, oh, you can feel lots of things. And... Uh, then with the breathing, so the in-breath comes and goes, the out-breath comes and goes, and you train yourself on arising and vanishing. The sensations of the in-breath arise and vanish. Sensations of the out-breath arise and vanish. And even while that in-breath is expanding, you might hear you know, four or five different uh, sounds of a bird on this side, a different kind of bird on that side, you know, noise from over there that just arise and vanish. And see, normally when you meditate, you think, oh, that's a distraction, right? Especially people practicing samatha, thinking all these noises and all these things are distractions. So it's an enemy for them. And they get angry when the noises are going on because they're trying to block it out in order to fix their mind on a particular point. But in Vipassana, it's the opposite. We invite it in. Come on. I dare you. Come on. The more the merrier. And so, because that gives you more things to observe. But you hear one sound, but instead of clinging to it, there's always something else you can here. You hear one sound here, you hear a sound on the other side. You hear a sound there, you hear a sound on the other side. Or in front, or behind. If you feel something on your foot, feel something on your head, or your right arm, or your left arm. There's always something. It's not that you're actually looking, but the mind is awake, and they appear. And so, the more you can note, the mind doesn't have time to, enough time to cling on and bring in the memory about the object. And therefore the liking or disliking, the greed or the hatred also doesn't uh, come out. And that doesn't uh, divert your attention. And also the sense of ego is in directly proportion to the amount of identification or attachment to the objects. Our whole life around that. Our whole life is based on that. I'm a surfer. I like waves. I mean this and that. We, the whole life is uh, built up around our immediate little uh, world. Uh, so it's uh, you know, difficult to kind of let that go. But, but the more things that you can... Uh, so the sense of I is based on the amount of attention you're giving to the object. Now, if you're not giving attention to the object, and the objects are no longer the past and future related to the various stimulations are no longer come into play, the ego doesn't have any ground to stand on because its whole existence is in relationship to the objects that it's attached to or doesn't like. So when that process stops in the mind, the sense of the I starts dissolving because it was never anything concrete. It was only a shadow in the mind. It was only a, a bubble. 
as I mentioned, the baby's not born with a sense of I. We've created it. It's become Frankenstein's monster for some people. You know, it torments them. Uh, so that's why I call this the, the trick of vipassana, is you speed up the rate of perception. Again, like the, the train going out of the station. Uh, and it builds up speed, depending on the strength of your concentration. Builds up speed. And it's similar to a child's coloring book. This is a very good analogy. A child's coloring book. You know, the child's coloring book, at least uh, some of them, you know, the kind that they have many dots on a page, right? There's many dots on a page. And looking at the dots, it doesn't really mean much. But you give the child a colored pencils, and they connect these dots with the red line. And they connect the other dots with the green line. And some other dots with the blue line. And then Minnie Mouse or Donald Duck pops out. And then they see it because they've connected the dots, right? But that's what our mind is doing. It's connecting the dots because of attachment. It's connecting the dots of feeling, hearing, seeing, or many dots of feeling. And it comes up, oh, that's my knee. Or that's my body. Or you're listening to sounds and you know it's connecting all those dots. And then getting angry or liking them or whatever, because it brings in the, the memory. So again, this is this is the high technology, the Buddha's high tech, vipassana tech, mental technology is speeding up the rate of perception to trick the mind out of itself. Because it, you're not giving it time to drag in the past or future. And in the same way, the, because the ego exists for the past and future, it starts dissolving. And you can directly experience that in meditation when you've developed this kind of awareness to a high degree. Uh, you can experience that. Uh, and that is this, you know, the kind of insights, you know, the deeper meditative kind of uh, insights. So in Vipassana meditation, we're trying to disconnect the dots. And don't give the mind time to cling on to any particular thing. There's always something else. There's always, you know, again, so many thousands of things available if you're awake. The problem is, if you're half asleep, then you're not going to feel anything or if you're lost in your thoughts. That's why those drowsiness and being lost in the thought are the two biggest hindrances because it, it virtually blots out any possibility for any type of development. <coughs> so the, you know, and so when you're doing also, when you're tuning in that flow of impermanence, you can see how easily the mind starts to grab at something. Actually, you want to hear the evolution of suffering? Okay, according to the mental process, okay? Okay, if you're meditating, let's say you feel a sensation. The first thing that arises, maybe there's an unpleasant sensation arising somewhere. And then the mind identifies that feeling and says, that is a pain in a knee. And then it says, that knee is in this larger body. And this larger body belongs to me and I don't like it and they're struggling that's the evolution of suffering check it out next time 
You know, it starts with an empty vibration floating around in space, but yet the mind grabs it, locates it somewhere, identifies it, places it, and then grabs it as mine. You know, and th that's exactly, you know, that's the, that's the core arising of suffering. And that's why the Buddha talked about these five aggregates of clinging, because people don't understand them. Why don't they teach that in school? Don't you think it would be worthwhile? Why don't they teach mindfulness in school? Some places now are starting to. This is critical. This is, this is the mind. This is the world creating process. Yet no one, you know, cares. I wouldn't say no one, but I mean, you know, society in general, they don't care. Because they're stymied by whatever different beliefs they have that uh, don't allow them to, you know, open up to new things. Uh, so, again, I'm, I'm mentioning this because this is the next. This is the next. And you're sitting in med, oh, what should I do now? You have to keep refocusing the attention, coming back regrounding you know trying to you know get that initial type of uh, calm some initial kind of concentration and you will know when it happens because when you feel that kind of relaxation and you're able to you know kind of just feel even intermittently the sitting and breathing, there's some kind of relaxed thing and, and training yourself just to, you know, hearing, hearing. Uh, feeling, feeling. And, you know, stay alert. That's the main thing is the alertness. And then, uh, you know, the, the in and out breathing is always there to come back to, but around it, through it, are other things that are, you know, you gradually tune into that. And when the mind starts to cling to something, you have to apply your wisdom. Like, you know, if it's starting to react to a, uh, an itch, you see, you know, unpleasant feeling. Just, you know, molecules and atoms just vibrating. Don't say that's an itch on my face. That's when you suffer because then you don't like it. You're identifying that itch as being on your head, your head belonging to this body, this body belonging to you. And you don't like it. Uh, and every other uh, type of scenario is the same. It all comes back to that same process. So this is investigation. In your next meditation, this is, you know, if you want to practice vipassana, this is the, you know, this is the vipassana method. Uh, and it's the Buddhist method. You can read it in all the texts. Uh, but, uh, so anyway, that's why investigation of Dhamma is a very, uh, you know, it's the second factor of enlightenment. Uh, and you know when you actually start to observe and see how quickly the mind you you get like you get a lot of energy because it's almost like exciting. But again, it's, it's the hindrances that are the biggest uh, problem because they're blocking our ability to uh, go into that uh, deeper. Level. So, uh, I think uh, maybe that may be enough for this Dhamma talk. Give you a few more things to maybe consider. 
See, the more understanding you have, then when you're meditating, you don't have to go, the, what did the Buddha say? Oh, let me get my rule book. Let me get my sutta. <laughs> you know, when you have this intellectual knowledge, when you have it at, at your beck and call, like right you know, there, having memorized these things, having read it over and over, and then also just even in your meditation, even if you just do an intellectual meditation, that will be to your benefit. In your next meditation, just go over these five aggregates. Just tell yourself, what is the form aggregate? It's this body made up of atoms and cells. What is feeling? The impingements coming through and the painful and pleasant reactions. And see the mental labels and pictures that are popping out, perception. And see how you get attached to those. That's investigation. And it's very, very interesting. But <laughs> you have to know how to, <laughs> to do it. It takes practice because our mind gets so easily stuck in its old habits. No, no, I don't I want to go back and just focus on the breathing or whatever. Or... That's too much, it's too crazy for me. But, you know, that's what I, you know, highly suggest and even sort of challenge you to work on in these next few days. Because, you know, you may not know the benefit right now, but once you get some insights, you know, you will you'll be a believer. And, but, you know, that's the difference between just the intellectual understanding and, uh, and the meditative uh, wisdom. And I know in a retreat like this, it's really not enough time for most people to uh, develop that to a, a deep uh, level. But at least uh, if you know about it, uh, then... Uh, you know, it's, a lot of people don't even know this kind of thing uh, is there, you know. Uh, but. Okay, so, uh, where are the questions from last, there's still questions, right? No, 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 but uh, yeah, don't write too many more questions. I won't be able to get through them, but if you have a couple about that topic, maybe. Yes. That's the function of wisdom. You know, there's a saying, wisdom will set you free. How many have heard that saying? I don't know who said it, but it's a very old saying, wisdom will set you free. And it's absolutely true. And that's why the Buddha's teaching is mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, or morality, concentration, and wisdom. Wisdom is always there at the end as the, as the goal. And that's why the saying that there's no meditation without wisdom and no wisdom without meditation. Or as Bhante Ji says, no concentration without wisdom and no wisdom without concentration. Uh, because it's, it's the, the wisdom. It's like, look, you might have smoked cigarettes or back in the day when the cigarettes were not talked about as being bad back in the 40s and 50s, you know, much. So people, you know, smoke. But then once they, all this information came out and also about polluted foods and, you know, all these contaminated foods and pesticides, and now people are stopping to eat those, those things. 
It's because of the, the wisdom that they got, knowing that that's going to cause you suffering or premature death. So it's the same with the Dhamma. We're killing ourselves by drowning in our own uh, sorrows and addicted to our unwholesome habits that keep bringing us pain on different fronts. And eventually you kill, kill people. So the Dhamma is that, that medicine. Uh, okay. So uh, I think that's uh, enough. Take a deep, slow breath just for 15 seconds. Just touch base with your buttocks, your feet. Pressing the floor, ground zero. Hold the breath in a few seconds. Do the relaxing out breath. 